You've probably heard me say that the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the questions that you ask. But in truth, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the decisions that you make. And if you keep making bad decisions, then you're going to have a lot more struggle in your life than if you're able to make better and better decisions. So in today's episode, we're going to get laser focused on the ways that we make choices and how to uncover our blind spots about the poor choices that we make or the poor ways of making decisions and then what you can do about that. So whether it's choices that you're making within a relationship or just in terms of who you pick to get into a relationship with, we're going to talk about those sorts of things in today's episode. First, however, just a reminder that Relationship Alive is an offering for you so that you can have the best possible relationships. If you are finding this show to be helpful for your relationship or for someone that you love, please consider a donation to help ensure that we can continue. Every little bit counts and you can choose whatever feels right to you. To make a donation, just visit neilsatin.com slash support or text the word support to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And this week, I'd like to thank Dave, Michael, Michelle, Joseph, Ruthanna, Holly, Jenny, Marie, Timothy, David, Angie, and Heidi. Thank you all so much for your generous and in many cases ongoing support of Relationship Alive. Along with decisions and their impact on the quality of your relationship, your communication also plays a big part. And I've put together a free guide for you to my top three relationship communication secrets. To download the free guide, just visit neilsatin.com slash relate or text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. These are the kind of tips that when you put them into practice, they're relatively simple and straightforward, but you will notice a big difference in your ability to stay connected no matter how challenging the thing is that you're talking about. Again, neilsatin.com slash relate, and it's free. Something else that's free is to join the Relationship Alive community on Facebook where there are more than 4,000 people gathered to talk about the things that we talk about here on Relationship Alive and to support each other in your relationship. So come join us, the Relationship Alive community on Facebook. And if you have a question that you would like me to answer in Relationship Alive, then the awesomest thing for you to do is to record yourself asking the question and to send that recording to questions at relationshipalive.com. If you're a little shy about recording yourself, you can just write down your question, but the recording would be super awesome because then I could use that on the show and people would be able to hear your rich, lovely, amazing voice asking whatever question that you have and I'll answer it for you. I think that's it. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive, 
This is your host, Neil Satin. The world of relationshiping is based on a series of decisions that you make. You make a choice about whether or not you even want to be in a relationship. You make choices about the kinds of relationships you get into. We're making these kinds of choices all the time, and yet for many of us, we don't even realize that we're making choices. In fact, we kind of ease our way into situations and we find ourselves there. Um, and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here, right? In the words of David Byrne, we don't always necessarily know. And yet, the more aware you are of how you make your choices, your choices about how you date, who you date, how you enter into relationship, how you leave relationship, the more you're aware of what is actually going into that decision-making process, the better you'll be at making better decisions. And of course, relationship is an iterative process. We do it over and over again, hopefully getting better each time. It doesn't always work out that way. But in today's episode, we are going to talk explicitly about how we make these decisions and how to improve upon them and some uh, potential pitfalls that can lead us astray along the way. In order to have this conversation, I've invited a dear friend who's also an esteemed behavioral scientist. Her name is Logan Yuri, and she and I have actually been together in a relationship mastermind group for almost, a, no, it's been a little over a year now. We just celebrated our year anniversary as a group. And it's been a great way to come to know her and her insightful ways of looking at the ways that we that we make choices about how and who we date. She also works as a um, dating coach and a matchmaker, and she is also working currently for the um, dating app Hinge, which I'm sure she'll have more to say about as we get into our conversation. As usual, you will be able to download the transcript of this conversation by visiting neilsatin.com slash Logan, that's L-O-G-A-N, uh, or you can always text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And uh, I think that Logan also has a quiz available on her website, and we'll give you a link so that you can take her quiz and find out about who you are as a dater um, or who you've been as a dater. And um, anyway, let's just get started. So Logan Yuri. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today on Relationship Alive. Neil, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun getting to know you over the last year in our relationships group, and I'm super happy to be on the podcast. Awesome. Well, I'm psyched to have you here as well. And um, mostly because along with being a great person, you have some fascinating wisdom about what makes us tick. So I'm wondering if you can just give like, a quick synopsis of your background. Like, how did you get to uh, merging the world of behavioral science and dating and love and relationships? Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to jump right into that. So, Great. I studied psychology in college, and I've always been really interested in how people think, how people make decisions. So, I studied psychology with an emphasis on 
women, gender, and sexuality. And then a funny story is that actually my first job out of college was working at Google and I managed the advertising for a bunch of porn advertisers. So our group was colloquially known as the porn pod. Uh-huh. And that was a, an interesting first year out of college. And then later I had the opportunity to lead a behavioral science team at Google and that was called the Irrational Lab. And behavioral science is the study of how we make decisions. So we know that people are often really irrational and they make decisions that are not in their own best interests. But what's cool is that these irrationalities don't just happen randomly. They're, they're predictable. So if you understand, okay, people tend to make this type of mistake in this type of situations, you could actually help shift their behavior. So I was doing that at Google. I was really enjoying it. But at the same time, I was just fascinated by dating and relationships. I was single. I was using dating apps. And I started a YouTube series at Google called Toxic Google Modern Romance. And I would bring in people like John Gottman, Esther Perel, Dan Savage to talk about dating and relationships. And a few years later, I just realized this dating and relationship stuff is really what I'm interested in. It's my passion. It's my calling. And when I thought about how I could make my contribution to that world, I thought, well, I have this knowledge of how people make decisions. Why not apply that to dating and relationships? And what that's looked like for the last few years is uh, doing a residency at TED, where I got to do a project and give a TED talk about dating and relationships, and also now writing this book about how to apply uh, the ideas of behavioral science to finding a relationship and creating a great relationship. Right. I didn't even mention that in the intro, but it's important to know that you have written this book. It's actually not due out until February of 2021 around Valentine's Day. So you as a listener are getting a sneak peek into Logan's into Logan's work because I got a sneak peek at the book and um, which was a big p- privilege. And um, that I'm curious about this sense of us as irrational decision makers, because one thing that became clear as I was reading your book, or maybe it was clear because this is what you were emphasizing, is that there are all of these uh, laws, let's just call them, about that describe how we make decisions poorly. And it made me start to wonder if we are just inherently predisposed to be kind of bad decision makers and if we actually do need training around making better and better decisions. And I, and I, I wonder if that's true from your perspective, that there's the way that we kind of come through the mill as we grow up and are just exposed to life. And the reason that these laws exist in behavioral science is because in general, we actually don't really know what we're doing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say in general, I think we often make decisions that are against our own best interest. And some of the areas where this comes up often are eating healthier, working out or saving money. So Mm -hmm. if I said to most people, would you like to save more money? They would say yes. But then in a moment where they have the chance to save or spend a lot of people, a lot of people spend. And that's why I think I read recently that the average American does not have $400 available if there were to be some sort of emergency. So clearly, we're all having trouble saving. And and similarly, people say, Oh, I want to lose weight, I want to eat healthier. But then in the moment when you're faced with getting um, a burger, 
or a salad, a lot of us just choose what feels good in the moment and we'll get that burger. And there's different reasons for this. So one of them is called um, the present bias, which sounds fairly obvious, but it's basically that we disproportionately measure things based on how good they feel in the present. And we don't think as much about the future. And there's a whole list, there's a whole catalog of these cognitive biases, which is just a fancy way of saying reasons why we make mistakes in our decision making. And it happens in all areas of life. But I think it's really fascinating to study how it affects us in love and relationships. And as I write about in the book, sometimes when I talk about this, people push back and they say, oh, that's insane. You can't be rational in love. And it's not that I'm going for rationality. It's not that I want people to be some sort of supercomputer that says like, input, input. All right, these five daters plus this situation equals this is the best person for your soulmate. Beep, boop. It's not like that. It's not, it's not, <laughs> it's not any sort of algorithm. It's much more just saying like, hey, these are cognitive biases. These are invisible forces that often get in people's way. And if you can understand them and you can avoid those mistakes, then you can start to make better decisions and hopefully wind up in the loving relationships of your dreams. Yeah, and most of the time, without an awareness of what those biases would be, then you're just doomed. And in fact, as I read bias after bias in your book, I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like each one just dis shows you how we are set up to fail potentially. Um, was there one that stuck out to you? I'm just curious. I know you just read it. Was there one that stuck out to you where you're like, oh, this helps me understand either this thing that I've done in dating or this thing that I've done in other areas of my life? And, you know, just to put you on the spot, is there one that you remember? Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> no. Um, well, one of them was just simply the status quo bias, that idea that... Um, people just kind of tend to leave things the way they are. So whatever you're experiencing, you're going to assume that that's that things aren't going to get any better or that that's what you're going to experience in a different situation or that it, it creates too much of a challenge for you to try to change things to something different. Um, so that was one that jumped right out at me as like, oh, right, like this is why people settle for whatever situation they're in. Yeah, absolutely. And I've been thinking about that a lot um, in my own life in terms of decisions that I've made. And even as I've been thinking about life in quarantine and during coronavirus, there's a lot of things that were just part of life before that we took for granted. So we could say like the status quo was that people go to an office. The status quo was that we go to a lot of restaurants. The status quo is that we see our friends on the weekend. And now that that's been changed, it's actually a cool opportunity for a lot of people to think about what to do differently. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking about how this is actually a really interesting opportunity for people to question the status quo bias in their own lives and think about how they'd like to live instead and use this moment as an opportunity to reflect on basically what their life looked like and what decisions um, they had made that were basically decisions that they had made over time that now dictated what their life was like and would they like to make different decisions in the future and using this as a chance to kind of check in on that. Yeah, for sure. And so many of the choices that we do make are around coping with a particular set of circumstances in our lives. So, you know, here, <laughs> here we are talking amidst the coronavirus pandemic and sheltering in place and 
not being able to make those choices, I think we've, I've witnessed anyway, um, lots and lots of people who are having kind of the the status quo of their lives just like thrown in their face because the the traditional ways that they've dealt with how their life is, they can't do now. So now it's all being called into question. They're coping mechanisms as well as like what it is that they even want to do how they how they live their lives or or what they're confronted with there in the moment yeah absolutely and with my dating coaching clients one thing that has come up over and over is that for some people their status quo was that they would meet people let's say on the apps or in person and then they would get physical with them pretty quickly let's say after day one And that was just a habit and that's what they did. And that was how they engage with people. And now that that's not safe and they can't do that and they're doing virtual dating, they actually are taking an opportunity to go slower with people and get to know them more, have more moments of vulnerability. And presumably if they like this person, they will then meet up and, you know, possibly be intimate with them after coronavirus ends. So it's really interesting for them to, because of this global pandemic, have an opportunity to say, oh, wow, actually, like I was in this pattern that wasn't really serving me and I want to try something different. So obviously, this is a really sad and stressful situation for everyone. But to me, that's been a silver lining, this opportunity to check in on your behaviors and say, all right, that's what I've been doing. Do I want to continue doing that in the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think another one of the biases that just jumped right out at me, um, partly because so much on this show, we're... We've been emphasizing curiosity as an important value to hold in terms of improving your relationship, improving your connectedness with your partner, and improving your understanding of yourself. And um, and yet, you mention the I think it's called the narrative fallacy bias. Mm-hmm. This yeah. idea that we do you want to just talk about that? Sure. Yeah. yeah, the narrative fallacy. I talk about it in the part of the book where I'm talking about how to break up with someone, but I think it's really relevant to all areas of life. Yeah. So the narrative fallacy is the idea that we are always looking for cause and effect. We are always looking for an ex- a story to explain what happened. So one example that pops into my mind is if you read a lot of biographies, they will try to say because this thing happened, this person was this way. So because Steve Jobs was adopted, he was always trying to prove himself, and that's why he was so great. And is that actually the reason why? No, we have no idea. But we always want to say, like, because of this, this happened. So in the breakup chapter, I talk about how when you're breaking up with someone, it's not really your moment to give that person feedback. It's not really to say to them, like, this is what's wrong with you. And that's why I'm breaking up with you. And one of the reasons why you should do that besides the fact that it's not very kind is because that person will focus in on that and they will obsess over it. And because of the narrative fallacy, they will say this person broke up with me because of that, even though it's likely due to a whole slew of reasons. So because of our desire to create a story to explain our lives, uh, people will really focus in on that one reason you give them. And therefore I think you should not give them that type of feedback in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, and the way that it enters into just our normal day-to-day lives with each other are the ways that we are constantly constructing meaning, trying to mm-hmm. make sense out of how we're interacting with each other or with the world. And so it, it what the narrative fallacy says to me is that our inherent bias is to basically make up something that helps it make sense to us 
without necessarily checking in. Like an important part of that is it might be false. Like it matters less whether or not it's true or false and more that it helps us make sense of the world. Um, so it seems like it would be a huge obstacle to um, being curious because curious requires you to call everything into question and be willing to to see through your assumptions or the narrative that you automatically construct. Yeah, I really love that framing. I have a section of the book where I talk about the fundamental attribution error, which is our tendency to basically look at why somebody did something. And instead of say, um, oh, this person was late because they left their house on time, but the subway was running late, we say, oh, that person must be rude. And whatever it is, we always attribute um, their behavior to what kind of person they are instead of the situation. And what I say to them is like, you really have no idea. Maybe that person did leave their house on time and there was just something out of their control. So in the book, I say, here's a common uh, fundamental in the situation, such as someone being late, the fundamental attribution error would be to say, oh, that person's rude and thoughtless. And instead, you can look at them with compassion and say, I bet they tried their best, but something was out of their control. And I, I feel like I could add to that uh, what's a cre- what's a curiosity fueled response, which is something like, oh, you know, how has your day been or what's been going on for you? And maybe giving them an opportunity to explain to you that actually this was the thing that they were most looking forward to and they couldn't wait to get here. But as they were leaving work, their boss dropped by their desk and made them do a final assignment. And that's why they were late. So, yeah, I love the idea of curiosity as sort of the antidote to the fundamental attribution error. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the corresponding, you may may or may not remember what it's called, but there's something corresponding to that, right? Where we assume the worst of other people, but we assume the best of, like, if we were to make the exact same error, then we we would assume that we have a perfectly good reason. Or is that just part of the fundamental? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There is another one. I might actually cut it for the final version of the book. It might be too, uh, too many of these terms, but that one's <laughs> called the act. That one's called the actor observer bias. So basically how that one would work is, if I see that you're late, I think you're thoughtless. But if I see myself as late, I just say, oh, it's because of the bus. So for others, I attribute it to their internal personality. And for myself, I give myself an excuse of, oh, it was the external situation. Right. Right. So now, hopefully, as you're listening, you're getting you're getting what I was talking about, that there are all of these natural ways for us to act that are seemingly inherent to how we are. And yet they are operating at cross purposes with developing deeper understanding or being kind and generous with another person when they're late, for instance. Um, Yeah, I liked your adding that, like the curiosity prompt in there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I would just say like, this might sound to your listeners as very jargony. And the point isn't to say like, let's apply a fancy term for something that's obvious. I think instead the goal would be oh, you read that and you say, that's something that I do. Or the next time it happens, the next time somebody does show up late to a date, you might stop yourself and say like, okay, so my natural instinct is to blame this on who they are. What's a different choice that I can make? And I think that's a really good example of what I hope the book will do. I hope it will help people have some of these flashbulb moments where they say, oh, I totally do that. And next time that happens, I'm going to make a different choice. And a combination of those different choices may be exactly what somebody needs in order to find love. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I think that's 
um, well, just so everyone knows, even though we're talking about these terms, like your book is is uh, quite readable, and um, you know, I found my I didn't feel myself being like hung up on any of the terms because you present the term and then you give like real world examples of how those things would play out. So, yeah, don't don't get hung up on on the fancy terminology. It's it's all very easy to understand and how you write about it. Cool. Yeah, I'm so glad you found it readable. I definitely tried to wear my coaching hat when I wrote it, as opposed to writing for an academic journal. I really want it to be something where the average person says, I can make different choices now when I read this. Not that the average person says, okay, I've learned 20 psychology terms. Right, right. Um, so let's talk some about dating, um, because... Um, while all of the stuff that we've talked about is is applicable, you know, no matter where you are on the arc of relationship, where you come into the conversation is a lot about how do you even find a partner and what what kinds of choices go into how you approach finding a partner. Um, and you do work as a dating coach and a matchmaker even. So um, I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about um, the three um, tendencies that you've identified and um, and how they impact our search for love. Great. Yeah, I'll just jump right into it. And then, you know, if I'm going on too long, feel free to interrupt yeah, I'll me. stop you. <laughs> yeah, great. So as a dating coach, I have a lot of people that come in and work with me. And we usually just start with a free session. And during that session, I feel like my goal is to basically be a great listener, ask them questions, and then figure out what's been holding them back. So through that process of talking to you know dozens or hundreds of people about their dating lives, I've really started to develop a sense of the patterns that tend to be holding people back. And remember, this isn't necessarily all daters, but daters that feel like things aren't working out for them, daters who felt compelled to come talk to me about their dating lives and, and get help with them. So what I found was that there's actually a common thread, which is unrealistic expectations. And that's how I think about these three dating tendencies. So the first one is the romanticizer. And that person has unrealistic expectations of relationships. They think that relationships will be happily ever after, that you meet the soulmate, you feel an immediate connection with them, you have that spark, you fall in love, and it's effortless. And these people... I have found are less willing to put in work to find someone because they are expecting their rom-com meet cute moment where you both reach for the tomato at the farmer's market at the exact same time. And so these people often struggle with relationships because they either don't put a lot of effort into meeting someone, they think it'll happen naturally, or when they get into a relationship, they give up on it as soon as it feels hard or like it's work because they say, if this were truly my soul with Nate, it would be effortless. Right. And the the reframing of that or the, the pathway out of being a romanticizer is? Yeah, the pathway out is to understand what a relationship actually looks like. So one thing I talk about in the book is what I call the happily ever after fallacy. And that's the idea that the hard work of love is finding someone. When in fact, the hard work of love is being in a relationship. And I know that that's a very common theme of your, your podcast. And it's something that your listeners should be really familiar with, but just the idea of relationships take work, relationships take effort. If it feels hard, then you're doing it right. 
And Neil, I know you and I are both big fans of the work of John and Julie Gottman. And one of their big ideas is that it's all about small moments matter. And it's about putting in the daily effort. So for the romanticizer, I want them to make a few shifts. One shift is to go from thinking that love is just something that happens to you to actually being something that you put effort in. You should put effort into finding someone. For thousands of years, our family or a local matchmaker is the person who would help us find love. And that doesn't exist anymore. So now it's on you. And, And it does require effort to meet someone the same way that you would put effort into finding a job. If it's something that you want to go after, you should be putting effort into that. And then once you have found someone, you should have what we call a work it out mindset, which is the idea that relationships aren't just effortless and you should put um, a lot of thought and care and attention into them. Yeah, it seems like so ironic that these aspects of our lives that for many people consume the bulk of our time and energy, certainly a bad relationship will consume the bulk of your time and energy and and in a different way a good relationship will um that we might enter it thinking like well it should just kind of be it should just it should just work out and then when it doesn't well there's nothing that that you can do which maybe is like the sort of the detrimental after effect of being a romanticizer that if you find yourself in a in a troubled situation you might be inclined to just think like oh there's well, there's nothing I can do about this. Like it just, this just, this person wasn't the one versus being able to be proactive and and work it out as you were just talking about. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of saying it. And I have had a lot of romanticizers crying on my couch saying, you want me to settle and you want me to be with someone I'm not attracted to. And I think there's just a lot of ways for this to feel like I'm saying, oh, just pick a random person and make it work. And That's not the idea at all. It's not about saying like, oh, you could be in a relationship with any single person. And if it doesn't work out, it's your fault. It's it's not about blaming and it's not about settling. Instead, I think it's actually a really empowering message. It's saying a great relationship is something that you build, not something that you discover. Mm. And it's up to you to work with your partner to build the relationship of your dreams. And instead of expecting it to be easy, if you walk in with the expectation that it will be both challenging and fulfilling, I think that gives you a lot of opportunity to craft that relationship and to be to in the moments where you're not satisfied to actually work on it as opposed to giving up on it. Logan, we just need to take a quick break so I can mention this week's sponsor. If you are looking for some extra support around the things that get in the way of your happiness or achieving your goals or your dating and relationship life, one great way that you can do that from the comfort of your own home or office or anywhere really is BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can chat via text with your counselor at any time And you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to go anywhere. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and they do offer financial aid. They also offer a broad range of expertise so that you can find the person most suited to helping you with your own unique situation. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. So whether it's depression, stress, anxiety, your relationship, trauma, anger, family conflicts, whatever is up for you, try out BetterHelp 
to help you move past the places where you might be stuck. To start living a happier, more stress-free life today, you can try BetterHelp and get an extra 10% off your first month for being a Relationship Alive listener. Just visit betterhelp.com slash alive and join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with BetterHelp. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash alive. And thank you so much, BetterHelp, for your support of healthy decision-making, healthy relationships, and Relationship Alive. And now, uh, Logan, let's get back to our conversation. Recently, I heard Michael Yapko mention this distinction that I really appreciated, which was the difference between feeling like the purpose of life is to find yourself versus the purpose of life is to create yourself. And, and I think that is basically what you're saying here about relationships, that by having a more in-depth understanding in this work-it-out approach, then you're in much more of a position to be able to create the, uh, an amazing relationship. Um, but work it out is different than make it work. So like when you're, I could imagine when your clients are like, you just want me to make it work with this person that it's horrible with, then like that's a moment to pause and say, well, like there are ways to, to evaluate your decisions about whether or not to stay and whether it's worth staying or not. And you do talk about that later in your book. So maybe we'll get to that in this conversation as well. Oh, I absolutely love that. I'm writing that down. Yeah, work it out does not mean make it work. Work it out means that relationships take time and effort and there are going to be moments where it's more or less challenging. And make it work is take any two people and have them get married and see what happens and and, and their their job is to just um, figure it out. And yeah, that's not what I'm proposing. I'm, I'm more saying that romanticizers will find that they are in the relationship that they want when they take an active role in creating and cultivating that relationship. Now, that was one place where I found myself getting a little confused as I was reading um, because there's this sense that when you commit to a decision, um, and maybe this will come out more in one of our, when we're talking about one of the other two types of um of uh, daters, um, the, one of the other two tendencies. But this idea that when once you commit, that actually helps you make um, better choices because you're kind of ruling out possibilities that are potentially detrimental to your the ongoing success of your relationship. But that can also be a double-edged sword too um, if you're committed to the detriment of moments where it's clear that that making it work is no longer the the right choice. Yeah, no, I totally agree that there's a tension there. And I think for every single person, it's going to be an individual exploration of, am I in the right relationship for me? And when I'm really honest with myself, how do I feel about this? Can I see us having a future together? Do my friends and family feel like this is the right relationship for me? And that's kind of going into the, should I break up chapter of the book? But I want to address what you just said about this idea of rationalization. Mm -hmm. And that's something that as I wrote the book, of course, I was living my life and in my own relationship. And that's something that I found was just a really helpful lesson for me to double down on. So the idea of rationalization is that um, 
our brain really wants to be in agreement with itself, right? Our brain doesn't want to have two conflicting thoughts at the same time. That's something known as cognitive dissonance. So as soon as you, um, as, as you're weighing uh, two different options, let's say you're saying, um, what's something that's actively going on in my life right now? Okay, so basically I'm deciding, should I postpone my wedding because of coronavirus? And right now I'm sitting in that really awkward state where I say, here are the pros of delaying it. Here are the pros of keeping the date. Here are the cons. And I go back and forth and I have these yes, no lists, right? Mm -hmm. Rationalization is the idea that as soon as you make a decision, your brain helps you feel really good about it. So let's say I decide right now, I'm gonna postpone my wedding. Then my brain will go into overdrive to convince me that that was the right thing. It will say, this is the safe thing to do. You won't have to worry about it for a year. You can tell your friends right away. And as soon as I make a decision and commit to it, then I feel like that then what happens is your brain starts to tell you that that was the right thing to do. So one of the ideas in the book is that sometimes the best decision is just to make a decision because as soon as you make that decision, your brain will make you feel good about it. And what happens? often happens in relationships is that people spend way too long in that decision-making mode, going back and forth, weighing the pros and cons. And it's through that process that they're really torturing themselves, that they're building up a list of reasons why both ideas are wrong. And that actually leads to a lot of regret. So one thing, as I've been making decisions in my own life, as I wrote the book is I try to make decisions sooner and realize that as soon as I actually commit to something, my brain will help me feel better about it. And I try to spend less time in that pro con debating mode. Mm. Yeah, that makes me think about what you write about the power of deadlines and the dangers of having a deadline that's too far out in the future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that's absolutely something that You've probably even seen like in our conversations through our relationship mastermind group, but I absolutely try to use the power of deadlines as often <laughs> as possible. And sometimes when I've talked about writing the book, people would be like, uh, you're the first person I know who's ever written a book who's actually turned it in on time. I was like, oh, I don't think I could have done the book if I didn't have a deadline. Mm -hmm. And I think deadlines are like really the only way to get things done. And the reason for that is when you have a deadline, you say, okay, so it's due next month. What are my weekends look like? When can I get this done? And you actually put time on your calendar to do it. When you don't have a deadline, you say, oh, it'll get done someday. And then you never schedule time to do it and you never get it done. Right. And it gives you all that time, as you were saying, to build up the cognitive dissonance of too many pros and cons that could lead you in whichever direction for a decision that you're trying to make. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah, um, deadlines really just help you commit and get it done. Yeah. Um, this also makes me think of the uh, something that you bring up in the section on maximizers in your book about sure. the 37% uh, the rule. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what a maximizer is and, and where that algorithm factors in. Absolutely. Okay, so the first tendency that we talked about was the romanticizer, and the second one is the maximizer. So there's an idea that comes from a psychologist named Herbert Simon in the 1950s about people who are either maximizers and satisficers. And if you're listening and you're wondering which one you are, let me give you the scenario. Imagine that you're on a plane and you're flipping through the channels and you're trying to figure out what to watch on a two-hour flight. And one type of person flips through the channels, they come across Goodwill Hunting, they say, oh, that's a pretty good movie. And they just watch it. 
and they spend the rest of the flight happily watching Good Will Hunting. The other person spends the first 25 minutes of the flight going through every single possible movie option. And only when they have surveyed all the possible choices and chosen the absolute best one, do they then commit to watching that one. So maybe in this case, they watch the movie Hustlers. Um, unfortunately, they spent so long looking for it that they actually land right before the movie ends and they don't get to see what happens. And so the first type is called the satisficer. That's somebody who has a standard and they look around and whenever they find something that meets that standard, they say, okay, this is good enough and I will I will accept this. So they found Google Hunting and they liked it. The maximizer is someone who says, I have to see every possible option. And then when I've seen every possible option, I can make my decision. And sometimes you can do that. You know, you can look at every single movie on a flight. But in dating, that's absolutely impossible. First of all, there's no way that you could ever date every single possible person in the universe. And how would you then decide who is the best among them? And you also probably, if you're looking to get married, don't want to spend your whole life looking for someone. You actually want to spend some part of your life actually married to that person. So many of my <laughs> dating coaching That's clients, a really good point, Logan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't want to on your deathbed say, of all the people I dated, this one was the best and then die. No, of course, that's ridiculous. So. <laughs> You want to, a lot of the dating coaching clients I have are maximizers. And these are people who say, I just don't know. Could I be happier with somebody else? Should I break up with this person? Is there a better person waiting down the corner? Um, if only I swipe a little bit more, is this perfect person one swipe away? And what I do with those people is I help them say, you know, the right question isn't, could I be 5% happier with somebody else? And that's a real question that I've been asked. The right question is to say, what do I need? Am I getting it from this person? And could I build a life with this person? And there's a lot of wisdom in satisficing. It's not about settling. It's about having a standard, which can be a very high standard. And then once you've found someone that meets that standard saying, yes, I'm going to try to make it work with this person. And Neil, that's kind of the lead in into what you had asked me about, which is there is something called the secretary problem. Uh -huh. And it's a form of, it's, a, it's basically a math problem. There's an area of math called optimal stopping theory. And that's a really fancy way of saying, um, imagine you have to make a choice. How many options should you consider before making the choice? So here's how the secretary problem works. Imagine that you are looking for a secretary and there are 100 possible candidates how many of those candidates should you interview before you make a choice, before you choose one of them? And keep in mind that there's a cost to taking a long time and seeing all of them, which is for everyone that you see, if you say no to them, you can't get them back. So you certainly don't want to get to number 99, find out number 100 is bad and wish you could have gone back. And you also don't want to spend your life interviewing secretaries. There's also just the time of going through them. So it looks at it from a mathematical perspective. And what they have found, the mathematicians who investigate this, is that you should look at the first 37 secretary candidates. You should figure out who was the best one from that. And then you should hire the next person you see who is as good or better than the best candidate from the first 37. And I know this is a little jargony, but you're basically coming up with a baseline. You're saying, all right, of the first third, who is the best? And then I say yes to the next person who's as good or better than that baseline. And so if you want to apply this to dating, I find that a lot of my clients 
are way past the point of seeing their first 37%. And in fact, they're almost trying to see every single possible quote unquote secretary candidate. So what we do is we can't say these are the total number of people in your life that you'll ever date. So we can say, all right, let's think about it in terms of years. How many years are you likely to date? So in the book that I got this from, which is called Algorithms to Live By, they say, imagine a man who's going to date from 18 to 40, what would be the 37% mark? And for him, it would be at the age of 26.1 years. So basically, after that age, you've probably already been through your 37%. You should think, um, who is the best person that I've dated up to now? And then you should commit and try to be with the next person that's as good or better than that first person from your group. Does that make sense? Makes total sense. I mean, as you're describing it, I start thinking about, okay, like how, what are the, what are the attributes that you're using to determine who was the best of that, of that initial group? And, and I know that you discuss like basically going through and listing out all the people that you've dated up until this particular point in time and, and having that, um, having a spreadsheet of like what was awesome about them and what wasn't and what worked, what didn't, what values do they, um, do they illuminate for you as being like really crucial to having a good relationship? Yes, exactly. And I do talk in the book about, I have one chapter about how to choose your life partner instead of your prom date. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that a lot of times people are just looking for this prom date and that's someone who's hot. They look good in pictures and you want to have sex with them at the end of the night. <laughs> And instead, you should go for your life partner. And that's someone who you really can have by your side, who you can make hard decisions with, who you have this deep connection with. And it's not just something fleeting based on things like money or looks, things that can totally change over time. It's really about the essence of your personalities together. And are you a good match? So I often have done this process with people of having them make spreadsheets about past relationships and really reflecting. And oftentimes patterns do emerge. So for example, I was working with someone where he put a question on there, would I feel proud to introduce this person to my family? And that question was really revealing to him because there was only a few people for whom the answer was yes. And he could really tune into that and say, okay, what was it about these people? And I think one of it was that he was from a really intellectual family. And that was an important part of his own personality. And he had not necessarily been dating people that really met him on his level intellectually. And that helped him realize, oh, this is something that I've kind of been putting on the back burner, but it's something that is really critical to me. So in making, in kind of taking inventory, I want people to think about what are the things that truly matter to me and how can this help me both make um, a different choice about who to commit to, but also just a different choice about who to date. Like what are the qualities that are really coming up over and over again? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because I've I've had this pet theory that I've been working on that I, I haven't really talked much about, but it's this idea that at different stages in our lives, there are certain kinds of relationships that we are just not capable of because of our own developmental state as a human. And um, so I'm reflecting on that, you know, 26.1 or years <laughs> old and thinking like, oh, yeah, but what are like the ways that we make choices in our 20s are is different than the way that we make choices in our 30s and 40s and i guess part of the problem is that if you're if you're looking to get married and and create a family and 
um, deal with some of like the biological issues that come up there, then you're kind of forced to making the best decision that you can, you know, when you're still at a child, child creating age. Yeah. So remember that 26.1 was just something that they talked about in this book, Algorithms to Live By. And that's a person who would theoretically date from 18 to 40. If you are only going to date from 18 to 25, then 37% of that is a lot lower. It would be a lot younger. So you would make that benchmark decision a lot earlier. Um, but in terms of your theory, my immediate response is that I think people spend a lot of time in their teens and in their 20s, making bad relationship decisions and repeating patterns over and over again. And I think there's sort of an idea that like at some point, they'll just flip a switch and suddenly know how to start dating, not just for that prom date, but for their life partner. But I actually think it's something that doesn't really happen automatically. People need to be really conscious about it. And people, it, it, I hope, I think the book will be read by a lot of people who are in their later 20s and 30s. But my hope is that also some younger people who are at the beginning of their dating lives will read it. And hopefully, they will stop bad patterns or bad habits before they start. Because I've heard the analogy that your relationship life is like a garden and whatever seeds you plant at a young age will come up later. Mm. And I think that's totally true. And if we could help people plant healthier seeds in the beginning, you know, dating people who respect them, dating people who they feel safe with, dating people who they can explore with, then um, you don't have to later deal with that baggage because you actually have prevented kind of some of that emotional trauma from ever occurring. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I love that, and that that's definitely part of what I aspire to as well in terms of planting those seeds. I'm always excited when someone contacts me who's like still in high school, and I'm like, yes, you know, we found you when you were still young. Um, I guess theoretically, my content is explicit, and if you're under 18, you shouldn't be listening. I don't know, but I'm glad you found me nonetheless. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an amazing thing to be able to help. It, there's the, uh, we could go on and on about this, but there's such a dearth of relationship education, a dearth of sex ed education. So the fact that you are kind of filling in the gaps and telling people about what a healthy relationship looks like and how to get one, like you're really setting that person up for success. So that's an amazing gift that you're giving them. Yeah, thanks. You too. Um, and I love the garden metaphor. I mean, it can, I guess, feel kind of cliche, but it was. I was thinking about it actually when we were talking about the romanticizers. Um, because I was thinking that being a romanticizer is kind of like this idea that you would be going for a walk in a field and that you would sort of magically come across this garden that just happened to grow there with like perfect produce and no weeds and, and uh, you know, neatly arranged rows. And that would never happen, right? Like in a million years, you're not going to come across something that's been cultivated that way um, on its own. So um, I think it just shows like how important it is to be conscious about the work that you're putting in and the fact that some work is required to have a garden like that. Not that you'll never come across a delicious you know, pear tree in the wild, but you're going to have to walk through lots of woods to find it. That's for sure. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Yeah, I've never made that connection before, but I think it's true. It's like most things worth having are worth working for and they require work. And there's actually one part of my book that you might remember about this thing where the more effort we put into something, or the more effort we see put into something, the more we actually value it. So if you know how kayak 
doesn't just say, here are the flights you've been looking for. And it doesn't just display them automatically. It actually says, we're searching United for flights. We're searching Delta for flights. Right, right. We're searching American for flights. And what they're doing is they're actually showing you all the effort that they're putting into that flight. And there's research from Mike Norton of Harvard Business School that shows that people actually prefer the slower results in which you see what, quote unquote, the algorithm, the algorithm is doing for you. Because when we see effort going into something, we value it more. And the same thing happens with relationships. You'll actually value a relationship more when you put a lot of effort into it versus when it just comes so naturally. It just doesn't have that same satisfaction. Yeah. And um, and then coming back to the maximizers, I, I had I started thinking immediately about the way that modern dating, particularly modern online dating, works and how that must just feed right into the maximizer's worst tendencies, because there are so many potential choices. Absolutely. So I think we often see people with online dating feeling really overwhelmed by the amount of choices. And let's say you lived in a small town and there was 10 people your age and there was only a few of them that you liked and you were basically deciding between Bobby and Billy. You might just look at both of them and decide who you like more and marry Bobby. But if you have literally thousands of people that you could date instead of Bobby and Billy, how do you ever know who to choose? And that's uh, there's a concept called the paradox of choice. And the idea there is that while we think that we really want options and while we always crave choice, actually a lot of choices can make us feel really overwhelmed. And the result of that is that we either make no choice at all, we just get too overwhelmed, or we make a choice but we end up feeling regretful or even depressed about the choice we make. So I think that's a very common theme in modern dating is that people are just really overwhelmed by the amount of choice and it can absolutely exacerbate this maximizer tendency. It can make you feel like, oh, well, like, let me just keep swiping because the perfect match is only one swipe away. Hmm. And I'm curious for you as a dating coach, what do you do when someone says, yeah, I keep going out on dates and just everyone just seems horrible? Like, it's just like one horrible situation after another. Um, sadly, I hear this a lot from women in their 40s who are swiping through. And I guess, I don't know, guys, you got to step up your game or something. But like, there's this perception that there's just like a dearth of people who are, even though there are lots of people, there aren't a lot of people who are maybe looking for the same thing that you're looking for. And how do you address yeah, that as a That's really coach? interesting. I would I would want to speak to that person more and sort of know the situation, but what comes to mind is that this might not be something about a maximizer where you you like someone but you think the perfect person is waiting for you right around the corner. I think there could be a couple things going on there. So one could be dating burnout, which I'm sure is something you've heard about where people, let's say you've been swiping for seven years and you're just over it and you don't want to go on more online dates. You walk in with a really bad attitude and you just have really low expectations. And then, you know, the person just meets those expectations. So I like to say, um, whether you think the date will go well, or you think the date will go poorly, you're right. And so for someone like that, I would want to talk to them about what kind of emotional baggage are they bringing into the date? Are they walking in saying, oh, I'm sure this person's going to be a loser. And then they just wait and they 
get that confirmation. They say, yeah, just like I thought this person was a loser. Are they going on 20 minute coffee dates where they're barely giving the person a chance to open up? Are they being closed off themselves? What is this person bringing into a date to make those dates go poorly? So one thing I would do is just really help them explore how their own attitudes and behaviors are affecting their outcomes. And there's lots of psychological reasons behind that. I don't have to get into all of them. And then the other thing I would do is I would look at who they're going out with and are they repeating bad habits? Are they repeating bad patterns? Are they stuck in a pattern that they developed in their teen years where they go after the bad boys or they go after manic pixie dream girls? You know, there's lots of bad habits that develop and they might just potentially be dating people who are quote their type and those people keep letting them down. And maybe it's a chance for them to actually expand the pool of who they go out with and potentially allow themselves to be surprised. And Neil, I'm sure you've heard this before, but I find in my work, it's very common that when someone says, Oh, I met this guy. He's totally different from the type of people I normally date that in my head, I'm like, yes, I bet it's going to work out (laughs) because when I hear that, I say, Oh, you broke a bad pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to see dates as experiments and to be excited about the process. So I think if you're not excited about it, then you enter into that zone that you were just talking about, where um, if you think it's going to go poorly, then it probably will. But if you're able to to approach someone you've never, someone who's unlike anyone you've ever been with, with curiosity, like what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, then you're in a much better position to learn something new, discover something new, try something new, experience something different. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. And for the person who was experiencing burnout, I would say, maybe take a month off from dating. And what can you do in that time to restore yourself to refresh yourself, you know, read a read a book and become slightly more interesting, develop a new hobby, volunteer, like just take a break from dating so that you can actually recharge and then start dating with a better attitude. And let's say that person says, but I'm a certain age and I really need to find someone. I would say it's not always about the amount of effort you put in. It's so often about the attitude that you bring and the the mindset that you bring. So you're going to be much better off taking a month off from dating and then dating with a better mindset than just powering through and bringing that burnout to every single date you go on. Yeah. Yeah. And as you were describing that, I also had this thing pop into my head about um, the values that you're bringing to to your dating. So if, um, if you're taking that break, as Logan is suggesting, using that as an opportunity to go a little bit deeper around what you're looking for and why you're looking for it. And and if there are standards that the people you're dating aren't meeting to maybe get really clear on what those standards are and, and what's beneath those standards, um, what emotional needs, what needs for security or safety or um, whatever it is. I mean, I'm just making those up because it could be anything. Um, the more clarity you get on that the more you can be intentional about whether that's the choice that you want to be making as you're looking for for partners. And you, Logan, talk about in your book, you you kind of end in this place, but I I always I always love I have to make sure I read I get to the end of someone's book because they always save the best things for last. And um, you talk about love as being an act of intention and creating intention around all the choices that you're making along the way. 
as a way of of exerting some control over shaping the course of your love life in a way that stands the best chance for success. Absolutely. Yeah. So this relates back to what I was talking about with the happily ever after fallacy where some people just think like, okay, I have to put effort into finding someone or I have to wait until someone finds me and then everything will be perfect. It's all about finding that person. And I really want my work to exist in contrast to that. And I want to say to people, no, that's just the beginning of being in a relationship. And it's this idea that I call intentional love, which is approaching your relationship with a lot of thoughtfulness, making decisions together, taking advantage of those small moments. Like, should we be in an exclusive relationship? Should we move in together? Should we get married? And really thinking through each of those and thinking through what it means and what it means to both of you. And are we on the same page? And I really want some a relationship to be an area of somebody's life where they feel like they're in control and where they feel like they are exerting a lot of effort and thinking about things intentionally. And that's the type of love that I think not only is, is the most satisfying, but also has the best chance of survival. And I'm sure if you speak to anyone on their wedding day, they say, oh yeah, I know that 50% of marriages end in divorce, but that won't be me. And of course, 50% of those people would then be wrong. So to me, this is part of an effort to, you know, I'm joking here, but kind of divorce-proof your marriage. What are the things that you can do throughout the process to actually wind up with the person that you want to be with in the type of relationship you want to be in? And I think a lot of that is being intentional. Yeah. Yeah, um, I agree. And I I think it's really helpful to to frame it that way. And um, as you were talking, I was kind of scanning through my notes because there was one thing that you talked about in the book that I really loved. And you you did just bring it up, which was identifying all of these kind of key decision point moments in your relationship, maybe starting with for yourself, who it is that you're you're going to be dating to begin with. But then there's the, the defining the relationship moment or the should we move in together moment and and again being like super intentional about those and 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 having a way to to make those decisions together that actually takes your values and where you're headed your vision of where you're headed into account um, as part of the decision making process yeah i mean neil you just summarized it extremely well but the term i use in the book is decision point so if you've ever Mm -hmm. eaten you know, let's say you get a gigantic bag of popcorn at the movies, you just keep eating the bag until you hit the end. There's never a point where you say to yourself, do I want to keep eating this? But if you had bought five little bags of popcorn, (laughs) and this is a real study that they've done, at the end of popcorn bag one or two, you're basically forced to make a choice. And you say, all right, do I want to keep eating popcorn? And what you've basically done there is you're not just making an automatic decision, let me keep eating popcorn, you're making a conscious decision. Um, should I continue? And what I argue in the book is that there's a lot of these moments in relationships, a lot of these moments where you say, should I keep eating the popcorn? Or in this case, should I keep being in this relationship? But we don't do that. We don't make it as a conscious decision. We just sort of say, Oh, I guess this is what I'm doing. Or, you know, my lease is up, let me just move in with you. And I really think that people could create stronger relationships, if they take advantage of those moments, and they actually use them as a chance to check in both with themselves and the other person. Yeah. Yeah. And in your book, you you offer some great criteria by which to have those conversations so that 
you can kind of frame it in a way that's productive. And since people aren't going to have your book yet, I'm wondering if you could just name like one or two things that you think are important to discuss, like with any of those decision points. Sure. Words. So yeah, so there's lots of decision points and relationships. Two that I call out in the book are the DTR, the define the relationship conversation. I've also heard this referred to as woo woo, what's up with us. <laughs> and so what I think people should really tune into in that moment is maybe you met someone on a dating app, you've been going out for three months, you've met their friends, and you think that you're exclusive with that person. And maybe that person is actually going on dates with lots of other people. Instead of entering into a situation where you never ask them and then six months in, you see, you know, another person's name pop up on their on their phone from a dating app and you get really hurt, which is something that has happened to one of my clients. Why not have that conversation? And so the way that I propose doing it is, you know, bringing it up casually. It doesn't have to be threatening. It doesn't have to be a demand. It's just kind of an exploration of, are we on the same page? And that's really the goal. So one way that I've suggested people do it is just to say something like, oh, I was talking to my coworkers about you and I know you're going to meet them later. How should I introduce you? And that's a very casual way of basically saying, are you my boyfriend? Are you my girlfriend? And I think something else could just be, hey, like we've been seeing each other for a while. You know, I deleted the apps last month. I'm just curious, like, where are you with that? And this is kind of going back to your point, Neil, about curiosity. It's not a demand. It's not saying I'm needy and I need this from you. It's saying, here's where I am. Where are you? Are we moving in the same direction? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that's so important, I think, about any of these conversations is for you to recognize that when you ask something and you really want the truth from your partner, it's important for you to create a context that supports their truth telling. So you you really do have to be willing to hear what's real for them and and to welcome it, even if it's information that isn't exactly what you wanted to hear or were expecting. Um, the reason for that being that you are setting the tone for future conversations that are about tricky topics. And the more you can show up with curiosity and compassion and trying to understand your your partner or your potential partner, then the more you set yourself up for being able to have those conversations in the future and have them be truthful with you rather than feeling like you're going to punish them for the truth if the truth isn't quite happy news. Yeah, that's really well said. And just to reinforce that point, I think it's the goal of this conversation is to align and make sure you're on the same page. It's not to get what you want. It's not to negotiate and it's mm. not to convince the other person. So a successful conversation like this might end up with the person saying, you know, I'm really not there yet. And then you say, okay, let's check in in a little while about that. It's not that the only way that this is successful right. is if you get what right. you want. Right. The mark of success is that you actually understand each other and then you know how you're, how you're moving forward from there. That's actually the mark of success. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think why, why I wanted to emphasize that point is some people might say, oh, I'm worried about bringing this up because what if the person says, no, I'm not ready, then I failed. No, no, you've succeeded. You've gained a data point. You've learned how that person feels and you know that you're not aligned yet and you can make sure to get on the same page in the future. So this isn't something that you should fear because you might not get the answer you want. It's something that you should actually prioritize because what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for success long term and you're 
hopefully avoiding a situation where a year down the line you realize that you were yeah. not in the relationship. You yeah, and the and the counterpoint to. Uh, punishing someone for delivering bad news. If you actually treasure them for a, pe- a piece of bad news they've just delivered, um, then that actually sets a great precedent for them feeling like you care enough about them and who they are f- to to value you and being honest with you. So it it kind of works the other way. Well, that it it incentivizes their truth telling and yeah. I love that. I think that's such an important point. And there's a story in the book about a couple that are thinking about the couples thinking about moving in together. And the woman says moving in together to me means it's the next step in the relationship and we'll see how it goes. And the guy says moving in together means we're getting married. And this is a step on the way. And she says, well, I'm not sure if we're getting married. So they decide not to move in together, but that doesn't mean it's the end of the relationship. It means that they're not moving in together. And that couple, which had great communication skills, was able to survive that moment and actually say, all right, so we're just not aligned. Let's wait. And these conversations don't have to mean the end. They just have to mean that the couple has some work to do to get on. Now, Logan, we only have a few minutes left and um, we still have one more of the uh, tendencies to cover. I just want to point out, so you have a quiz on your website that people can take to, um, to figure out which one of these they're they're more like, and and some of us may fall into more than one category. I know I did as I took the quiz in your book. Um, so uh, you can visit loganyuri.com. It's L-O-G-A-N-U-R-Y is how your last name is spelled. Um, loganyuri.com and take the quiz, and you'll find out if you are a romanticizer, a maximizer, or a dun 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 hesitator and it's maybe a little ironic that the hesitator which is all about waiting (laughs) comes at the end of the show seems very fitting and yeah just to talk more about the quiz this is imagine that you were my dating coaching client and you were to sit down on my couch and you would tell me all about your dating life and then i would say hey this is your blind spot this is what's holding you back the quiz is trying to do that at scale for lots of people so the hesitator is somebody who is waiting to date And what often happens with these people is that they have an idea in their mind that they have to be perfect or they have to be their best self before they can really put themselves out there. So for example, I've worked with people who say, I don't have the job I want to have. And when I switch jobs or when I save a certain amount of money, then I'll be ready to date. Or someone who says, I don't like the way I look. I want to lose 10 pounds before I take a photo and put that photo on the dating app and before I start dating. And their idea is that they want to put their best foot forward in dating. And why would they ever put themselves out there when they're not perfect yet? And what I talk about the book is that they're making a few errors. So one, one error that they're making in their decision making is the idea that Mm -hmm. anyone is perfect, right? Nobody is perfect. And lots of other people who are just like you are already out there dating and they're actually getting in their dating reps and they're learning how to date and they're learning what kind of person they want. And they are basically getting better at dating while this person is not. And that's one of the reasons why I tell hesitators that what they really need to do is to give up on these perfect ideals. And they really just need to get the practice and get out there and start dating and learning how to date and who they like. Another mistake that the hesitators make is thinking that, um, you know, basically they're setting themselves up for conditional love. They might say, oh, 
uh, if only I weighed 10 pounds less and this person would love me, well, why would you want to be in a relationship like that? Because Mm. then what if you gain that weight back? Or what if you lose that perfect job? Do you suddenly think that that person only loved you for that aspect of your personality? So it's actually much better to come to a place of self-love and self-compassion and just say, this is who I am and the person will love me for this, not say this person will love me for this external factor that may change over time. So what I really recommend to daters and it, to hesitators, and it sounds simple, is just getting out there and dating. And there's a few steps that help people do that. So the first step is just creating an identity as a dater. So not just saying, I am a person who will date eventually, but saying, I am a dater. I'm a person that goes on dates. I'm a person that is actively looking for love. And there's tons of research in the area of behavioral science that shows that having an identity around something makes you much more likely to do it. So if you say to somebody, are you a voter? They're much more likely to actually go and vote the next day than if you said, Mm -hmm. are you planning to vote? Because now being a voter Mm -hmm. is their value and their identity. So I want these hesitators to say, I am a dater. I'm looking for love. I also want them to set a deadline. We talked about the power of deadlines, right? So I'm going to start dating in two weeks. I'm going to start dating in a month and actually put that on their calendar, tell a friend, have that accountability. And then there are just small things they can do. They can get some outfits and make them feel comfortable on a date. They can take some new profile pictures that make them feel confident. They can even maybe think of some fun questions that they like to ask someone on a dating app or on a date. And basically what I want these people to think is not, I am a person who will one day be good enough, but I am a person now who is a work in progress. And I'm going to go out there and meet people and figure out what I like and get better at dating. And this is something that I can start now. So the uh, kind of motto that I would say for them is don't mm. hesitate. I like it. I like it. And I, and I like that idea too of seeing yourself as a work in progress and then recognizing that other people are also going to be works in progress. So it seems like it would help you show up in a much more generous way with the people that you're meeting and, and uh, you know, generous and forgiving, I guess, because we're all, we're all just finding our way through as we, as we go. Yeah, absolutely. I love that point. Yeah, it's not just people who are as imperfect as you are out there dating. It's the people you will come across are also imperfect. Everyone's a work in progress. And if we can even just going back to the thing you and I talked about, Neil, about the fundamental attribution error, if we can all just be a little bit more curious and a little bit more compassionate, imagine how much we can change the world of dating. I love it. Well, Logan, we we talked about a lot and we barely scratched the surface of what you cover in your book. So I'm excited for when it comes out in a little less than a year. I'm sure everyone else is too. I will definitely have you back on the show to talk more about it. Um, In the meantime, if you are interested in downloading the transcript of this episode, where we'll also have links to Logan's site and her quiz, um, then you can visit neilsatin.com slash Logan, L-O-G-A-N, or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And you can always just go to Logan's site, loganyuri.com directly to take her quiz on the dating tendencies and find out more about about Logan and, and her work as a, as a dating coach and matchmaker. So uh, Logan, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today on Relationship Alive. Yeah, you know, it was an honor to talk with you. It actually helped clarify a lot of the points that I'm trying to make in the book. I learned a lot from you and I'm excited to hear feedback from your listeners. 
Awesome. Well, definitely let us know. You can reach me, Neilius, N-E-I-L-I-U-S, at neilsatin.com, or you can comment in the Relationship Alive community on Facebook and uh, let us know what you think. So thanks, Logan. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.